Philippians chapter 5. My iPad is being weird, and so I'm actually having to teach from paper, which I don't think I've done in like two years. Um, all right. We have been in Romans 5 for the last few weeks, and we are going to continue there tonight. Um, Paul is essentially going through the benefits of salvation. Um, what this justification by faith brings. He spent the first four chapters of Romans arguing for justification by faith. And now in Romans 5, he has moved on from arguing for it um, to telling us the benefits of justification by faith. And so um, we're going to pick up again tonight in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. If you're there, say word. Okay, everybody's there. All right, rock on. Oh, okay. Anna Marie's not there yet. Bro. Um, <laughs> bro. For real. Um, all right, beginning in verse 6. Let's read. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would, um, you would fill our minds, that you would um, help us to focus and to center our thoughts and our attention on you and what you have said to us through your apostle, your servant, Paul. And God, I pray that as we read your word that you would open our hearts to see the truths that you have for us God that it would change the way we view you it would help us to love you better God that it would help us to know you more and father ultimately that it would push us out to give the gospel to those who so desperately need it and God, I pray that we wouldn't be a people that just keeps this good news to ourselves, but we would be a people who are constantly sharing this good news that the whole world needs a Savior. We just sang that you are mighty to save. Everyone needs a Savior. And God, we pray, I pray tonight that our students and myself would not be a people who keep this to ourselves, but we would go out and share that good news. I pray especially, God, as we come before you for our students who are headed to Salt Lake over spring break, God, we pray even now that you would begin to prepare the hearts of the people there, that you would soften hearts to hear the gospel, and that you would help us um, be faithful just to plant seeds if that's all you've called us to. Father, I pray that we would um, be able to persevere in that and see that you will send someone along to water those seeds, and God, hopefully that there will be growth and that um, people will come to know Christ for who he truly is um, and not be deceived by philosophies of this world. We pray all these things so that Christ might be exalted and that you may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. Verse 6. <laughs> Anna Marie is crossing her eyes at me. Um, it's okay. 
So, in verse, in verse 6 through 11 tonight, Paul builds on what he has just said in verses 1 through 5. We know he's building on the previous verses because he begins verse 6 with the word for. Right. He begins verse 6 with the word for, which connects it to what he previously stated. It's essentially saying because. For, and then he goes on, verse 6 through 11. Paul essentially says, because verses 6 through 11 are true, verses 1 through 5 are also true. And so we're going to walk through this text together. So let's get started and work our way through. First, he begins that Christ came while we were still weak and we were ungodly. What does he mean by this? Now when I, when I think of a weak person... What do I usually think of? What do you usually think of? We think strength. Okay, you think of a baby. A baby is weak, right? It, and we think in terms of physicality when we think weak normally, right? We're thinking they, they don't have the muscle to do that. They can't walk on their own yet as babies because they're weak. Their muscles haven't developed enough yet for them to be able to walk. We, we usually ter- think of terms... Um, as, as it goes with lifting weights, we think a person who lifts a lot of weight is strong, and a person who, who can only lift the bar, they're weak, right? Um, what's up with that? Yeah, I know, I just offended half of you, and um, that's okay. Um, so we, we think in those terms, right? Maybe someone is physically ill, and they're too weak to stand or to walk, right? Whatever it is, it carries the idea that someone's able to, unable to accomplish a task because their muscles aren't strong enough. So if I ask Daxton to walk out into the parking lot and pick up my car, you know what a muscle man Daxton is, right? So he could probably just stick his pinky under there and just like raise it up. Um, no, Daxton's not going to be able to lift up my car, okay? Um, there might be some Iron Man in the world who can. I mean, those guys are crazy. They pull, like, trains and stuff. It's, it's weird. Um, right? They're, they're kind of gross looking. and yeah. um, So when they're 80, I don't know what those dudes are going to look like. But it's going to be nasty. Um, but they can, they can, like, they can lift a car. Like, I've seen some of them do it on those Iron Man competitions. They're lifting, lifting cars and, and carrying this great... Wait, but if I asked one of you to go out and lift my car, I would imagine that none of you could accomplish that. Okay, um, and so it, and it's not that um, it's because you're unable. You can't, right? You don't have the strength to do it. And even if you went out there with the mindset that I'm going to do this, I'm going to lift this car. Jared wants me to, I want to, I want to impress some of the ladies, so I'm going to get out there, and I'm going to get my, my legs into it, and I'm going to raise this car off the ground, right? No matter how much you had amped yourself up, or psyched yourself up, and thought, I am going to lift this car, guess what? You still won't be able to lift the car, right? Because you are physically unable. It doesn't matter what your mind is thinking, at that point, mind over matter doesn't work, okay? Your muscles just won't do it. And this is what Paul is saying about our condition. While we were still weak, this term weak carries with it the idea that we are helpless and powerless to do anything good or right. 
It's not simply that we chose not to do good. It's not simply that we chose our sin over God. It's that we didn't even have the ability to choose right. We didn't even have the ability to choose good. We were weak. We were powerless and we were helpless to do anything that pleased God. The only choice that we had the power to make were bad ones. We, we didn't have, we, we couldn't. We were powerless to do, to do good. The Greek word here um, for weak carries the idea that we were incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. We were simply incapable, right? Um, like, I couldn't choose to be a dog. Right? I, I'm incapable. Like, no matter what my mind told me, I could bark and you would look at me funny. Um, I could, like, run around on all fours and, like, lick you and then you, would, then you wouldn't just look at me funny. You would never come back to church here again. Um, like, I could do all those things that I think a dog does, right? But I couldn't choose to be a dog. Like, I, I can't make myself. My mind doesn't work. I'm incapable of that. In the same way, we were incapable and we were powerless to get out of our condition. The sinful state that we were in. Not only that, but he goes on and says that we were ungodly. We were ungodly. Not only were we incapable of doing good, we were ungodly. This word echoes back to Romans 1. If you remember when we were in Romans 1... You remember Paul said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven toward ungodly men. Ungodly men and women. Um, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodly people. Ungodly people are not just people who make bad choices. Paul's already covered that in calling us weak. This term carries even a stronger weight. Paul is making the case even worse against who we were. The ungodly are those who rebel against God and his design for humanity. If you go back to Romans 1, after Paul calls us ungodly men and says the wrath of God is revealed toward us, he goes on to explain what ungodly men do. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have served creation over the creator. Women have exchanged the natural function and had sex with other women and men in the same way have done the same thing. And so Paul says ungodly people aren't those who just simply can't make good choices. These people are those who have rebelled completely against God and his design for humanity. They have completely rebelled. They are ungodly. But then look what he says in the midst of that. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for us. What does he mean, at the right time? If you're like me, I often read through these passages, right, and... And I just kind of read through that and never really think about what, what, did, what did he mean by at the right time? If he says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that seems to imply that there was a wrong time for Christ to die. Was there a wrong time for Jesus to die? What, what made this the right time? 
Paul echoes the same kind of phrase in Galatians 4, 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, when the fullness of time had come. So Paul keeps mentioning this time aspect, at the right time, when the fullness of time had come. So what's he talking about? And there's much speculation and can be over what this phrase really means, what Paul's trying to communicate, but most understand it to mean that God in eternity past had ordained the day and the time at which Christ would die. And this phrase Paul uses simply implies that Jesus Christ died according to the foreordained plan of God. That God had in eternity past set a time when Christ would come and redeem humanity through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul uses this to say that Christ came at God's appointed time. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now he goes on to give us a, this, this example. Look, look with me, if you will. In, in verse 7, he gives this example, and, and he kind of tries to show us how absurd this really is. Now remember, we're weak, can't do good, and we're ungodly rebels. Like, We've rebelled against God and his design for humanity. And then Paul says, how absurd is this that Christ died? Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Now what, what does he mean by this word righteous people? Righteous being someone that's good or someone that's upright. Right? Because he uses two different words here. He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe somebody would die for a good person. So, so he's saying two different things. Righteous carries with the idea that somebody, he keeps the rules well. Or she keeps the rules well. This upright person is probably not liked by many people. Because they're like, they think they're better than I am. Right? You all know those people? Like, that that keep the rules well and it would seem that they're upright and, and they always do the right thing it seems like and they're the teacher's pet and but other people don't really like them right um that that's what this this carries with it so one might die for somebody like that probably not right and then paul goes on to say maybe somebody would die for a good person a good person meaning not only someone who keeps the rules, but someone who does well in society that makes people like them. Like they've done good things for other people. They serve people. They don't, they don't simply keep the rules, but they do good for others. And it makes people love them. Right? Maybe someone would die for that person, Paul says. But Christ died for weak and ungodly people. Paul's trying to get across to us how absurd is this reality that Christ died for people who couldn't make good choices and had rebelled against God. You wouldn't even die for probably a good person. Sorry about your luck, bro. You know, like, so, sorry it happened. There's bro. Just for you. Um, so, sorry about it. You know, um, 
Hopefully you were saved, right? Um, I'm, I'm not going to put my life on the line for you, right? Um, so, but, but God has died for weak and ungodly people who were his enemies. Look with me in verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This whole thing that Paul's going through is supposed to show us how deep God's love is for us. While someone might die for a good person, Christ died for evil people. For bad people. For ungodly people. While we might see some merit in dying for someone who is good, it should seem astonishing that Christ would die for wicked people. Would you put your life on the line for someone who hated you? who outwardly hated you, who talked about you behind your back, who made fun of you, who ridiculed you. But probably not going to put your, your life on the line for somebody like that, right? Probably not going to die for that person. But Christ died for that person. Christ died for you. He died for me. This helps us see the beauty and the depth of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved you and he loved me so much that even when we were rebels and ungodly, wicked people, he came and he died. Not only that, but even the clause for us explains Christ's death. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners. The fact that Christ died for us suggests that he died in our place. He died a death that we deserved. If he died for us, then he was in our place. He was our substitute. And just to give you a big big words to throw around that, you know, if you want to confuse somebody, call it substitutionary atonement, right? Make people think you're really smart. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He was taking our death in our place, becoming our sacrifice for sin. This saves us from the wrath of God that is coming. If you look in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now Paul here is echoing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? In the Old Testament, the Israelites had to atone for their sins. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat where God's presence dwelled on the Ark of the Covenant. And he would go in and he would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood on the altar for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. And that was the atonement. They called it the Day of Atonement. Once a year he would have to do that. Why? Because the animal's blood was only sufficient for about a year. And then he would have to come in and sacrifice again. And over and over the shedding of blood had to happen for the forgiveness of sins. And the people were reminded every year that their sin caused death. And death was the only payment Good enough to forgive sin. Now Christ has come. He has shed his blood. And he is our perfect and eternal atonement. No more blood needs to be shed. 
He is the eternal lamb, the eternal sacrifice of God. And this saves us from the wrath of God that is coming upon the world. He doesn't stop there. He said, Christ died for us while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners. And now he goes on in verse 10, while we were enemies. So Paul keeps hammering the fact that we are not good, that we are wicked, that we are evil. And he's using all these different adjectives to describe our relationship with God. And he reaches here in verse 10, the climax. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So far, Paul's called us weak, rebels, ungodly, wicked. He doesn't stop. He goes on and he adds that we were enemies of God. Christ died and reconciled us to God. Again, notice he uses the past tense of the word. We were reconciled. It's not as if it's something that's still happening, that we've got to work out this reconciliation for ourselves. But we have been reconciled. We have been justified. We have been made right. So what does this word reconciled mean? How many of you have heard the word used in church? Okay. How many of you have heard the word used anywhere else? Okay. So a lot fewer <laughs> have heard the word used elsewhere. So let's, let's go through this. What, is, what does it mean to be reconciled to God? If we're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we might want to know what that means, right? Um, it might have some significance since Paul says it like a few times just in these couple of verses. There are a few different definitions, and I believe that all of them apply to this situation. Number one, restore friendly relations between two people. To restore friendly relations between two people. In other words, a relationship has been broken, and to reconcile it means these two people have been made right and brought back together. Often in our modern culture, you might hear this used in terms of divorce. They got a divorce, and the, the reason for the divorce that was stated in the papers was irreconcilable differences. Right? Like, that's the most common one, because it's easy to throw down on paper. Essentially, it's, we can't get along anymore. Right? Irreconcilable differences. They can't be reconciled together. They have too strong of a disagreement, and they can't be reconciled. The second one is, cause to coexist in harmony. The third definition, make one account consistent with another. It's a banking term. To make two accounts consistent with each other is to reconcile the accounts. Okay? Um, last, uh, another one, number four, is to settle a disagreement. Number five is reconcile someone or make someone accept a disagreeable or unwelcome thing. Christ has accomplished all of these in our relationship to God. He restored our relationship to God. Notice, God was not reconciled to us, but we were reconciled to Him. It wasn't as though God had turned His back on us and God walked away from us, but we had rebelled against God and walked away from Him. And now Christ has reconciled us to God. He makes it possible for us to coexist with God. In harmony, he settles the account of our sin. We had a debt that we owed. That debt was sin. We couldn't pay it. 
And Christ has paid the debt. He settled the account. He puts us in agreement with God. And last, he makes it possible for God to accept us. Without the atoning death of Christ, it would be impossible for God to accept us because God cannot accept sin. A holy and righteous God cannot accept sin. He must punish it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If Jesus could reconcile us while we were enemies, much more, now that we have been reconciled, can he continue to keep us saved by his life? That's the argument Paul's making. Remember a few weeks ago when we started this chapter, the listeners, the original hearers of this, would have been asking the question, what's to make us sure that this justification by faith is going to work out for us in the end? Right? That was, that was kind of the question that they would be asking. You know, if it's by works, we have, this, we have this chart of all of our rules, and we can make sure we're following the rules. If we keep the rules, we're in. If we mess up some of the rules, we kind of know where we stand. Right? But this justification by faith thing, it, it seems like we don't really have a, a measurement to keep on how we're doing. And Paul comes back to this argument that if Christ could reconcile you to God while you were his enemies, guess what? He can keep you saved now that you are his child. If by his death he can reconcile enemies, by his life much more can he keep you. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, not only do we have the privilege of knowing and not fearing punishment anymore, but we can rejoice in what Christ has done. He's saying not... Not only do you have to like not fear that God's wrath is going to come upon you, but now you can live and rejoice in what God has done through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now that we are reconciled, we not only don't live in fear, but we live with joy because of what Christ has done. So the question for you tonight, have you trusted Christ? Have you given him your life? Have you been reconciled to God or are you still an enemy of God? Do you still think that rule keeping is a good measure on how you're going to get to heaven? Listen, what Paul has said is it's not and rule keeping only keeps you in the state of being God's enemy. That no matter how good you are, it's never going to outweigh the bad that you've done because you were weak. You have no ability to choose that which is good. You're a rebel of God. You're an enemy of God. So I ask you, have, have you accepted Christ? Have you trusted in Him? Is He your justification? Has He been your sacrifice? It's a free gift that he offers to you by his blood that was shed on the cross. You can be saved. You can be reconciled to God. And you no longer have to live in fear of the wrath of God, but you can rejoice in Christ. And if you're a Christian, do you spend your life rejoicing over what God has done for you? Or do you spend your life complaining about the way things go for you?
Do you spend your life worried that the wrath of God is going to come upon you? Do you spend all of your time in fear over what God might do to you? Or are you living, as Paul said, rejoicing, knowing that Christ's death has reconciled you to God while you were still his enemy? So rejoice now much more because by his life he continues to keep you reconciled to God. And lastly, are you sharing this message with people you know or do you keep it to yourself? I guarantee every one of you know someone who has not trusted Christ. Do you let them live that life and think, you know what, I got Jesus, I'm good. You know, maybe someday they'll come to Jesus. Maybe somebody will tell them about it. Oh, they've probably already heard it. I don't need to tell them. Right? They go to church somewhere. They've, they've heard this before. Right? Because I use those excuses. Oh, they live in America. Surely they've heard the gospel. I mean, it's on TV. Just, just turn on a Billy Graham special, right? You, you have to have heard the gospel somewhere. They got those billboards that say, you're going to hell, repent, or whatever, you know? Like, they, surely, surely they've heard. I don't need to tell them. They probably heard it and rejected it already, right? Maybe somebody's planted a seed and God is wanting you to water that seed. Maybe somebody needs a seed to be planted. Maybe you just need to ask someone. Do you know where you're going when you die? Have you trusted Christ? You know you can stop working and trying to do good because ultimately your good's never going to outweigh your bad. Christ has died your death in your place and you can have life in him. I would urge you all to to search your heart this week and see if you have made that commitment. Have you trusted Christ? And if so, then think about the people in your life who need to trust Christ, who are living hopeless, wasted lives because they don't have the ability to make good choices outside of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. God, we thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. And Father, even in this country where we get to come together as believers and open your word and um, discuss it. God, where we can learn from it. Father, we, we thank you that we are not having to meet... Um, every few months in a basement, worried and fear of our lives for simply opening up the scripture. And God, we pray tonight for those around the world who are in those situations. Believers all around the world are meeting in secret and fear for their lives and fear that they may be arrested, that they may be taken from their families, that they may be beaten for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I pray that these students, I pray that myself would not take it for granted that we can open our Bible whenever we want to, that we can talk to anyone in public about the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear of persecution or arrest or imprisonment. God, I pray that we would feel the weight of that. I pray that we would feel the weight of the fact that people are dying and going to hell. And God, we have the message to bring them life to bring them eternal life with you in glory. And and God, I pray 
that that would drive us to be a gospel-minded people. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we don't live in fear of punishment or your wrath, but we can live in the comfort and joy of knowing that Christ has reconciled us to God. It's in his name we pray these things.